get this on first. Singing those Christmas songs, we want to have Christmas every Sunday, all the time. You know, I don't know why we don't sing them all year round. Uh, there is something special, obviously, about the month of December and uh, as we claim Christ's birth, although we know it wasn't exactly at this time. Nevertheless, he was born. And you know what's so great about Christmas? It's not only that he was born, that he was born in you and me, if you've been born again. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He was not just in a manger, but he dwells in us. That's an amazing uh, factor, uh, quite a mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. All right, we're going to preach the word this morning. And I want uh, uh, somebody to open up with me in prayer. Mike Clota, would you pray for me, brother, about the preaching of the word? Nice and loud so we can all hear you. Amen, amen. How dependent we need to be, do we not? Especially when we're about to preach the word, it makes me feel like like Moses when he says, don't carry us up hence unless your presence goes with us. How we need the Lord's presence. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and I'm going to preference it first by just giving you a, a, a thought or two about the previous verse that sort of leads into the ninth chapter, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Now verse 1 of chapter 9. But all this about the work under the sun, but all this I laid to heart, examining it at all, how the righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is so, so is the sinner. And he who swears as he who shuns an oath. Verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. Have you ever thought about when did you start reading the Bible? What was it that triggered you 
to start reading the scriptures. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and it was sort of the custom of the family, the parents or the parent uh, of reading the Bible and maybe it was sort of thrusted upon you and you grew up as a Bible reader. How many of you would raise your hand like that? There's a few of you out there. How many would you sit here that started reading the Bible under the age of 10 other than the hands that were just raised? Uh, how many of you would, would say you started reading the Bible before the age of 10? Hmm. How many read between, started to read between the age of 10 and 20? How many between 20 and 30? Okay, you're getting the point. So my question then is, what was it that specifically, specifically, if it did at all, motivate you to read the Word? Did you have a Bible in your home before you even picked it up? Was it available to you or was it not a part of your life or your family's life? It wasn't even in your thought life whatsoever. You'd have to examine yourself about that. For me personally, I hadn't read the Bible at, at all up to the age of 19 when in a monastery that I was at a retreat at and I had all kinds of questions that I was asking the priest and the, and the monks and getting more irate, I guess. I wasn't getting satisfactory answers until finally somebody interrupted me and elbowed me in the chest and said, hey, Gary, why don't you just go get a Bible? All the answers are in it. Well, that worked. And you know, that fellow that said that, his name was Paul, Paul Minor. Years later, he saw me preaching on the Worcester Common. And he came up and he says, do you recognize me? I says, yeah, you're Paul Minor. I says, you know what I want to tell you? You know why I'm here today? Because you said to me, go get a Bible. All the answers are in it. Hallelujah. Just a simple thing like that. But how the Holy Spirit works in ways that it's hard to understand. And I'm sure he has in some ways done similar to you in creating in you that desire to want to read the word. And the entrance of thy word gives light. And that's why a church like Sovereign Grace Chapel wants to place strong, powerful influence on the scriptures. Paul says to Timothy, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation, etc. Now, here we are. The message of the first six verses that we have read is among the most pessimistic of the entire Bible, one commentator says. Death comes as the final factor to life's vanity. Righteousness doesn't advantage anyone and all are destined to die. The grim grim reaper is at the door ready to take us out and without even a knock to inform us that our time is coming to a close. This especially is like the rest of the book. This is, you could say, categorically, the book of Ecclesiastes is a sarcastic rhetoric, Tim Keller calls it. Many examples throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is sarcastic rhetoric. It's been stated before in something that we always have to keep in mind that the Bible doesn't always teach what it records. 
The Bible doesn't always teach what it records. And many examples could be given of that. And the book of Ecclesiastes would stand out as one of those examples of it not necessarily teaching us what it records. But all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, etc. So we obviously can't dismiss the book of Ecclesiastes. So how do we understand a book like Ecclesiastes? Well, hopefully I can help you maybe answer that question as we move along. But first, let's begin with in the the first verse here of chapter 9. All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hand of God. Can we get the first slide up? The next slide, please. Scripture says right here, we are all in the hand of God. All in the hand of God. What does that mean? There are two ways of understanding that. First of all, are we going to apply, who are we going to apply this to? Who is in the hand of God? I think in the context here, probably primarily, it's referring to the universal sovereign control that God has over all humanity. There's nothing that slips out of his hand, okay? He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, you and me, sister. He's got all creation. He's got the little bitty baby in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. That's a wonderful thing for us to keep in mind when we see things that seem so out of control. You can imagine how it may have been even for a first century reader or an Old Testament reader when they were in the midst of wars and all kinds of cultural wars and kingdom wars that were going on between them and nations and having uh, wicked kings like a Nero reigning at the time and all kinds of impositions that they had to live with in the persecutions and then to believe that all things are in God's hands. Yes, Solomon is right here. Truly, God is in control of all things. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and all they that live therein. Romans 14, 8 says, Whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Now, that verse I know probably could have a limited application to, to the believers, but I think it's true of all humanity that everybody is under the eye of God and everybody is accountable to Him. So whether you live, you live to God. Whether you die, you die to God because there's no escaping Him. Adam and Eve thought they could escape God when they went into the woods, hiding themselves and putting on the fig leaves. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the world are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Even among the inhabitants of the earth, God has in his hand. Romans 9.21 says, Hath not the potter power over the clay to make one vessel unto honor and another vessel unto dishonor? Of course, The potter has the power over the clay of all humanity. All humanity is in his hands. Now what about us? Can we get the next slide up? I think a second application to being in his hand, which is a wonderful place for us to to be appreciative of, that we're not going to escape being 
jumping out of his hand or escaping from being in his hands. We are in his hands. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. For my Father which gave them me is above all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. For I and my Father are one. So if I take this as representing you in this hand representing Christ, when you become a child of God, Jesus says you're in my hand. And Jesus goes on to say that not only are you in my hand, but you're in the Father's hand. That's the kind of double security that a believer has. So if you ever have any doubts about your, your salvation and you know yourself to be a child of God, be assured that you're in his hands. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor thi- all things, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. His eye is truly on the sparrow. You are in his hands. Now this picture here is a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco Bay. Uh, this is a finished product, of course. But when it was first being built, and you may have heard me tell this uh, true story uh, about the background of this, when this was being constructed, this is hundreds and hundreds of feet above the level of the water beneath. And when the workers were working on this rig here, um, riveting and all the work that they were doing standing up there, they were frequently looking down below at a possible watery grave, fearful that they could possibly slip by doing the work that they were doing required some efforts that could have caused them to slip and fall. And they did this for, for a while until finally one of the foremen approached the supervisor and said, hey, I have noticed something. Our men are not working at full tilt because they're fearful and understandable that if they slip up, they're going to die if they have to go that far down into the water. We need to do something about it. So they came up with the idea of erecting a large, large net that went from one end of the Golden Gate Bridge to the other side, and underneath was this gigantic net. And from that point on, all who were working up there had no fear because they knew that even if they fell, that underneath was the net. For us, the same way. If you feel like you're slipping away or if you feel like you, you're not living up to the life that God has called you to, you're not work, walking worthy of the Lord. And this is not a consolation for continuing in a disobedient lifestyle. But it is a, a peaceful thing to the soul to know that God has you in his hand, that underneath are the everlasting arms. It's the strength of God that will never allow you to vanish away or to get away from him or him away from you. I love the way the hymn writer puts it. He says, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. 
Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. This is where trust comes in, that God has his eye on you and we, by the grace of God, are in his hand. Solomon goes on to say, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. So now we're going from the hand of God to which sounds like a very unsavory description to describe God as the hate of God. Whether it is love or hate, that's not referring to mankind's hate. It's talking about God's hate. You've heard over and over, and we often emphasize this rightfully so, that God is love. Can you imagine advertising that God is hate? It sounds way too morbid. It sounds way too out of sync with the God that we know. But let's not be naive either. The scripture says to know the goodness and the severity of God. God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 5, 5 says God is, hates all workers of iniquity. God hates all workers of iniquities. Romans 9, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I... Who's saying that? God is saying that. Hebrews 1, 9, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. We would be amiss if we neglected to mention the truth about God's hatred. And it's not appealing to me or to you. I know it's not naturally. But if we're going to believe the God of the Bible and understand what God is like, we have to see all of the virtues of God, all of the characteristics, the attributes of God, and one of them is a hate. I think you and I too have uh, some sympathy for that because I'm sure that we all here have hatred towards something. Everybody hates Satan, obviously, right? No doubt. We should hate sin. John Wesley said, give me five men that hate sin and I'll turn the world upside down. I think we need to hate sin more than we do. I know it it has a subtle way of, of kind of getting inside of our heads and we sort of poo-poo it, and we don't really give it the, the true gist of what it really is in the eyes of God that we should be mimicking ourselves. Let's read on. Verse 2, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, what's he talking about? To the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears as he who shuns an oath. Verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they die. They go to the dead. But he who is joined to the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for their memory of them is forgotten. Boy, oh boy, 
I guess that is very pessimistic, is it not? We can thank God for the New Testament. I was invited yesterday by a, a, a brother, pastor brother, who uh, said, I'm having a rabbi uh, come on such and such a date. I want you to put it in your calendar. I want you to be there. I said, what, what's this going to be about? He said, well, he's going to come and teach the Torah. I said, well, what does he, does, does he believe in Christ? Do you think he's born again? He says, I'm not sure. I said, um, well, what does he think of the New Testament? And he said, that's a good question. That's why I want you there. It's important to understand the relation between the old and the new. And let me give you some examples where I think could help us. Uh, In the Old Testament, death is vague. Death in the New Testament is clear. Death in the Old Testament is the end of all. In the New Testament, it's the beginning. Death is the doom The New Testament, death is destiny. The Old Testament, death closes the book. In the New Testament, death opens the book. In the Old Testament, it puts the lights out. In the New Testament, it turns them on. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament rather, you could say R period, I period, P period, rest in peace. The New Testament could be W-T-L. W with T the L Lord. With the Lord. Rather than simply rest in peace. And for the most part, you've probably read, I'm sure if you have the Old Testament over and over again, that such and such went and uh, was gathered with his fathers, with his ancestors. See, this what I mean by a vagueness. So you've got to be careful in not building your doctrine on portions of the old because the New Testament is an addendum to the old. It's not just merely a supplement, but it's something that clarifies and it's something as if the Old Testament is is like a sign is saying, don't stop here. Go that way. Go from me to it, from the Old Testament to the new. This is an incomplete book until you take the second half of it, and then you'll see the whole picture. The Old Testament sets the stage. It sows the seeds that the New Testament waters and blooms. It runs a complete and completes the lap, but passes on the baton to the New Testament to finish the race. The wisdom from above of the Old Testament Solomon's is blurred by the clouds, whereas the wisdom of the New Testament Solomon's burst the clouds and the sun shines brightly and through. This is not a, this is not, there's no contradictions. It's just simply the economical program of God's, the shifting, the transitioning, so that an Old Testament believer this rabbi should say, I, I have unanswered questions. Correct. You would have unanswered questions until you turn to the New Testament and you read about the Solomon of Solomons, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who hath brought to light life and immortality through the gospel. There's an enhancement, obviously, of the old. Death in the Old Testament is viewed as a very 
Solomon, I think even Jesus at the tomb was almost sympathetic towards death, the, the consequences, the effects that death had on humanity when one of the few times that Jesus wept was at the graveside of Lazarus when all the others as well wept. That's a wonderful thing to think of Jesus as having that kind of empathy towards his creation, his creatures, in seeing almost like this is what Adam did to us. This is what Adam brought into the world. Death, what a stinger it is. Look at the effects it's causing in the lives of these people. The tears, the sorrow, the departure of the loved one. How can that be overcome? Even though Jesus in that very chapter says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And praise God, he raises Lazarus from the dead and proves that he's the resurrection and the life. What glory shines, as we were, we were reading from the book of 2 Corinthians, looking, looking to Christ, uh, looking upward and seeing him who transforms our lives, who, who gives to us this, this treasure in earthen vessels so the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. For what purpose? That we might in our body bear the dying of the Lord Jesus. The dying of the Lord Jesus. What does the death of Jesus mean to you? This here verse in 2 Corinthians 4.10 always bearing about in the dying, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our flesh. You know, when Israel was coming out of Egypt, they had to go through the wilderness. And, you know, there was one thing that they had to carry the old way. And what was it? They had to transport something. I'm not talking about the tabernacle. The bones of who? Of Joseph. All the way they carried that until they got to the promised land. And you know what you and I are doing? We're carrying, bearing the dying of the Lord Jesus. And we're bringing it, as it were, to the Lord until our new Canaan comes down upon us, until the promised land comes down and we are in it. But in the meantime, the transportation of Joseph's bones has a parallel with us who are bearing about in our body, and I know Paul's talking about his, our earthly bodies, the treasure that we have in it that needs to be exhibiting Christ, like the early apostles that says they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. This should be something about you that someone should say, that person is different. They handle things differently. They act differently. They talk differently. They just simply uh, radiate something differently. They may not be able to pinpoint it, but it ultimately should be that they are taking knowledge with us, of us that we have been with Jesus because we're bearing about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, which sounds kind of negative almost, but the point is that that death is our life and we want to mimic that in the way in which we live and the way we conduct ourselves. Today is the Lord's Supper. We're going to transition into uh, remembering the Lord and his death and spending some time at Calvary for a moment. Because when you think of it, why did Jesus Christ come to abolish death? Death was the enemy of mankind. So we can look at death now as a believer on this side. 
saying, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a difference Jesus makes in our life, the way in which we handle things in general, but especially the way in which we can handle death. We can look at the grave and say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? It does not have any over us because Christ conquered it by his death. His death was our death so that we could live like he rose from the dead. We can live with Christ. And we have that blessed peace and blessed assurance. Carrying his bones, remembering the Lord's death. Until what? Until he comes. You do do show the Lord's death till he comes. That's one thing that if you're going to miss church, don't miss it on a Lord's Supper Sunday. This is the highlight of our coming together. This is a high expression that we can have on earth of our communion with the Lord primarily through the elements of the bread and the cup. Do this in the remembrance of me. How can we not want to remember the one that bore our sins in his body on the tree? What do we owe him? You know, the only thing he asks us as believers is really to be baptized and tangibly these two things and to remember him in his death. That should be something that Burns in our bosom. Lord, I want to remember you. I want to recall what you did for me. I want to be renewed in my spirit as I take a fresh gaze at Calvary and I behold the Lamb of God and I say, was it for me, for me alone, the Savior left his glorious throne, the dazzling splendors of the sky? Was it for me he came to die? Was it for me he bowed his head upon the cross and freely shed his precious blood, the crimson stain? Was it for me the Savior came? And for we who are saved, we can say, Hallelujah, it was for me. I'm not excluding anyone else. But you know the way the world looks at the death of Christ? Oh, he died for us. If you believe that Christ died for us, that's not going to get you to heaven. It's not until you can honestly say in your soul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says that. He singularizes that. He personalizes that. He brings that right into his own life and say, his death was for me. He died in my place. He was my substitute. For you that are saved, can you say hallelujah to that? Do you really believe that he died for you? A hallelujah. I hope you truly understand that and believe it with all your heart that he died for you. We want to give thanks. We want to be like the cleansed leper that comes back and say, Lord, I want to glorify you. And you know what glorifies God the most? Is when we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for the cup. Thank you for your body. Thank you for the shed precious blood. Because apart from his death, we had no hope. Humanity would have no hope unless the Son of Man, like a grain of wheat falls into the ground, he would have had to abide alone. He would have had no company of humanity None of, of Adam's race, none of even chosen people's race, of the chosen race, unless he died for them. Like the hymn writer said, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. So we who can honestly, truly say he died for me, 
I hope that as we open up this time for an open season of prayer, I'm going to ask Mark Campbell if you wouldn't, whatever you have in your heart. I know you always come with your basket full, brother, so uh, just take a moment, open the word, or pray, praise, whatever, and I'd like others to follow. Uh, please offer your spiritual sacrifice, to, to, spiritual sacrifice, excuse me, spiritual sacrifices to God, which is acceptable to Him. And what a great subject, what a great theme we have to focus our hearts upon when we consider the one who bore our sins in His body on the tree. We are Jesus people, aren't we? It really boils down to that. What you and I have in common is we love Jesus. He's my Savior. He died for me. He lives in me. I'm going to spend eternity with Him. He's coming back and taking me out of this world. I'm going to be brought to Himself. Well, right now we can be transporting these elements, as it were, waiting for His second coming. And as we do that, we, like Jesus said, and asked us to do this, in the remembrance of me. So, Brother Marcus, would you open us up and any, any, anyone else that would like to please, please do, please participate, offer up your spiritual sacrifices, even if it's just a matter of saying, thank you, Jesus. I love you, Lord. Thank you for your death for me. May the Lord give you that liberty and desire to want to share your heart to him and uh, that we can all be glorifying God together. So, Brother Campbell, do you have something that you can open us up with and then... Uh, I think I'll appoint a second person because always there's a little bit of a pause. Seth, would you mind right after that just just praising the Lord after and then others too? And remember, keep your, your prayers short, keep them cross-centered, and keep them loud enough so others can say amen to your giving of thanks. Okay, Brother Mark. <laughs> 